Hey there, welcome to Night School, episode 215. As for right now, I'm able to remember which episode we're on, and it's unlikely that that will last. It's unlikely that I will remember the number of episodes we're on until I reach 300, which will be soon. We're going to be reaching 300 soon. Trust me on that. Uh, But today, what I'm thinking about today is a very common topic on this show. Uh, It will continue to be common. It's been common. Uh, Things aren't going to change in this regard because I'm thinking about identity. And when you talk about identity these days, it's very easy for that to get twisted up into this identity politics discussion. And I hate even saying that phrase. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, I feel that it's, uh, it's hard to avoid it. Even when I talk about this bend, you know, even when I talk about this side of identity, on this side of identity, you know, even when, it, when I bend it in this direction, it's still hard to avoid some sort of political angle. But a lot of my ideas about identity come from my memories growing up and being in school, because that's when you see people really start to dig in and try to find an identity for themselves. And I always feel a little bit silly talking about school and growing up, even though this show is called Night School and the main show is called Every Night's a School Night. When I named this show, I had no intention of constantly talking about my school days. This wasn't meant to be a schoolboy show. Oh, that's oh, you are you listening to that schoolboy show again? Yeah, my girlfriend she found this show. I call it the schoolboy show. I wish someone's girlfriend listened to this and that her boyfriend hated it. <laughs> that's how I know I'm uh, I'm doing something right. Uh, but anyway, uh, when I named this show, I didn't mean for it to be some kind of schoolboy show. But that said, I'm also not surprised this ends up being a topic of conversation so much because I love to talk about it. When I talk to friends, whether I grew up with them or met them as adults, I'm always fascinated hearing about their memories growing up. And it's not nostalgia, 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 it's not that so much as it is hearing people's impressions of people at the time, because a smart person is smart all around. An aware person is aware to begin with. You know, I see I see intelligence as just awareness, as I've said before. I see intelligence as simply being self-aware, being very aware of your surroundings. And that's not something that you can learn. You can develop techniques, sure. But for the most part, you can't learn or develop or cultivate just inborn awareness of the world around you, your observations. And uh, so the people who are my friends, it's very much based on having kind of a similar awareness. doesn't matter what they're into or who they are, but I feel there's a similar level of awareness. And hearing their perception of the kids they grew up with, the teachers, just different situations, different stories. To me, that's more interesting than listening to somebody who's traveled throughout the entire world. Oh, and I went to Paris and I met, uh, you know, so-and-so. It's, I, I don't care about those stories. It's not that they're not interesting. It's not that traveling the world isn't interesting in its own right. But those are the sort of expected interesting stories. 
Oh, I love going to the bar and uh, listening to Zach's dad talk about when he was on a, a sailboat in Australia in the 1960s. You know, it's those are the stories that you're just, they're guaranteed to, you can write a book about them and people are going to care. Meanwhile, you know, for me, it's like, I'd like to hear what what Zach's dad did growing up. I'd like to hear what his perception was of the people around him and what happened and all sorts of weird little scenarios. Because why that's interesting to me, why school is interesting to me is because it's raw. You know, the kids themselves, their brains are raw. They got some raw brains and the way they communicate is raw. For better and worse, you know, because it's not simply, a, you know, mouth of babes sort of thing where it's like, oh, kids are honest in this really cute way. Kids are all kinds of things. Kids are all kinds of things. And because of that, you know, I just found their impressions and the things they said and they did so interesting. And I like to hear about that from other people. But anyway, you know, it's just, it's inevitable that I just end up talking about school a lot or, or recalling memories from school. I mean, I imagine there are all kinds of things that have happened in my life as an adult that someone might consider more interesting than these things. But for me, it all goes back to school. So this is a schoolboy show. Long story short, this is a schoolboy show. This is a schoolboy show. And with that, there's, you know, you're, you saw people first come into contact with this idea that I need to be something other than what I am right now. Because when you're a young enough kid, when you're in elementary school, you don't really have that. Most well-adjusted kids, when they're little, don't really have a need to, they, you know, that yeah, they, they role-play as Batman. They pretend to be things. They act things out. But they're usually related to stories and characters that they like. But they don't feel a need to become something other than what they are in most cases. And their interests come and go. Like this year you're into Ninja Turtles, next year you're into G.I. Joe. He-Man, that was two years ago. And three years from now you're going you're gonna to be into Ghostbusters. But, and still, and you're, you know, as a kid too, you get into those different things, you know, and you want, you want your being to reflect that in some way. Like a little kid might want a Ninja Turtle shirt because he likes the toys in the cartoon. And that's all pretty normal. It's all pretty just having interests, having a passion for something. So kids have a passion for something, but they don't feel a need to change who they are. And that starts to happen around puberty. And the example I always go to when I think about this is this guy, I was... I would say his his brother was an acquaintance of mine. We were never really friends. He kind of hung out with my friends in school. Uh, but his older brother was in school with us, and he was a year or two older. And his brother went through all of these distinct phases where, you know, one year he was a skater, and he dressed, you know, just like a, a central casting 1998 skateboarder. And I don't, I don't even think he really was a skater, but it was that was his fashion, that was his identity for a time. And then a year later, he was a raver. And I'm talking an orthodox raver. I don't think he did any drugs. I think he smoked pot, but I don't think he was doing any molly or any... I don't think he was doing any molly or anything. Uh, but he had the, the biggest Jinkos you ever saw. I don't even know if they were Jinkos. They might have been some other weird brand... Because these things, like, he looked like he was floating. 
He was walking around the junior high hallways like he was floating, wearing candy necklaces with these just big pants. They were so big. They fanned out. It was like he was hovering around. And so this was a kid where whatever he was into, he was orthodox. And that sounds funny to say. Oh, oh, he's an orthodox raver. Oh, this is my son. He's an orthodox raver. Last year, he was an orthodox skater. But this guy, you you really saw him go through these phases. And I went through phases. You know, I'm not saying any of this condescendingly. I'm not saying this to trash some guy who's now in his late 30s and at the time was 14. I'm not not doing this to trash a 14-year-old 20 years ago, from 20 years ago. Uh, but I, at the time, I remember just being very aware, being like, oh, yeah, his brother, oh, he's on, he's into another phase now, and he looks the part. He totally looks the part. And this guy, I was able to see him over the years, and later he, you know, he got into new metal after that, and so he went through this new metal thing where, you know, he's wearing a ball, a ball chain necklace and, you know, this and that. And then later, years later as an adult, I stayed peripherally aware of this guy. Like, I don't even really know him. But he always was kind of a case study or something to me. Like a sociological case study of somebody who plays this game of musical chairs, this identity musical chairs. And and like I said, I don't, I don't even mean this condescendingly because I certainly went through phases, many of which I'd be embarrassed about. I'm still embarrassed by. Some of them even disgust me. Some of the phases I went through even disgust me. But this guy, in particular, he was just, I remember thinking, like, I didn't sit there being like, oh, look at him, he's a poser. Look at the poser over there with his raver pants. He's, he's an orthodox raver poser. You know, it wasn't like I sat there thinking that. I just remember being aware. Again, it goes back to awareness. And later, though, staying aware of him as an adult, like he got into death metal and, you know, shaved his head and wore camo shorts or something, you know, whatever. I mean, death metal's great because there's very little identity to go along with it. There's very little fashion, really. There is, but there's very little. It's relatively normal. It's very low-key. But he did go through this death metal phase, and then he got he went into a black metal phase where he's, he's dressing like a certain subgenre of black metal. Like, not just black metal, the subgenre, but an actual sub-subgenre. Like, he got into that, and so he started dressing the part, looking exactly like the bands he was into. And then the most recent that I saw of him, which was some years back, was a neo-folk phase. And of course, to the average person, all of the things I'm saying right now are nonsense. Like, nobody would have any idea what I'm talking about. But if you're aware of what neo-folk is and what that sort of fashion, what that sort of aesthetic is, you know exactly what I mean when I say this guy, last I saw, was going through a neo-folk phase where he got the kind of Hitler Youth haircut, started wearing like button-up collar shirts, posing in front of esoteric objects, like basically taking photos of himself in black and white, standing in front of candles and antiques with a Hitler Youth haircut. It's just that basic look, you know. He got into neo-folk, and he's probably into something else now. That was five, six years ago, last time I, I was aware of what this guy was up to. So he's probably into something else now. If there is something else. Because eventually, when you play that game of musical chairs, eventually you run out of things to be. And I'll get to that in a minute, because I want to talk about this guy guy a little bit more. 
But just seeing him over the years, I was always very aware of, oh, he's going through another thing. And, you know, I know that from myself, from me getting into things. Like, oh, I'm into this music now. I'm going to start wearing band shirts connected to that. You know, in high school, I grew my hair out long when I got deep into metal. You know, before that, I was into something else. And, you know, and now as an adult, I don't know what the hell I am. What the hell I am. Uh, but, uh, you know, I understand that, like going through phases. But it's always an interesting thing when someone does that, when they sort of reinvent themselves, when they play that game of musical chairs. Because someone who's really good at that does it subtly to where nobody can call them out. Because people will. People will call you out. Kids will call you out over anything. People think that kids are out to bully each other over being fat and all of these obvious things. Oh, you got a big nose and you're fat. You know, it's like as if kids need that as an excuse to make fun of each other. You know, if you go to the ice cream man, you know, the ice cream van, the ice cream man van pulls up and you order a, you know, a a red popsicle and your friends order purple popsicles, they'll make fun of you for getting a red popsicle. And it doesn't even have to make sense. Kids will find a reason. They will find a way. Life finds a way, kids find a way to attack each other. Doesn't matter how many anti-bullying campaigns you want to set in motion, kids will find a way. And you just have to hope it doesn't get too cruel and too malignant. But the thing is, if you suddenly change your identity, your friends will call you out. If they're good friends, if they're aware And chances are maybe they're going through a similar phase. Maybe they're getting into the same thing you are. But your friends will call you out over that kind of thing. Oh, you got that haircut, huh? Oh, I see you got a bowl cut. You know, that sort of thing where it's like they'll notice if you make a sudden change. So there's almost an art, an art that I don't, I guess some kids just intuitively, intuitively have. I don't feel like I have it, but they're able to just subtly reinvent themselves without calling too much attention. But some people, it's almost like a video game, create a character where they just switch from one outfit to the next. And all of a sudden they're a whole new thing. And that's what this guy was like. And I was amazed to see as an adult that it continued. I guess I shouldn't be amazed. I mean, he was the product of divorce as am I. But with that family in particular, I remember feeling like they were kind of being pulled in different directions, and he was the big brother. So what does a big brother in a awkward, divorced family do? He finds different identities to latch on to. And, you know, I'm a product of divorce myself. My parents got divorced when I was young, not to turn this into a, a psychotherapy session. But I guess I never felt pulled in different directions Whereas this family, I could just see some stuff going on there. I wasn't particularly close to them, but I can kind of see... And this feels like Psych 101 bullshit. He took on all these... He wore his raver pants because his parents got divorced. <laughs> yeah, and the younger brother who I knew, he was the first kid I know to have the internet. And he was looking up all this anarchist cookbook, all these like profane videos, you know, death videos bizarre porn, things like that. Things that none of us had access to, he was telling us all about. So you can kind of see where this, these brothers kind of got knocked off balance somehow. And, And of course, tons of people, tons of people from nuclear family households go through phases and they hop around on the musical chairs of identity too. But 
I don't know. I just thought I'd throw that in as a little aside that it felt like some sort of response to divorce, in my opinion. <laughs> in my opinion. Here I am talking about a kid from a 14 year old from 20 years ago and why he did what he did. But yeah, this guy, his phases continued into adulthood. I, I stayed aware of him. And that's something that's fairly unique to us, I feel like. I feel like that kind of thing... You know, adults go through different phases too, but it's not as obvious to me. And I guess that's something I wanted to talk about. As I was thinking earlier about my parents, who were born in the late 1940s, and I guess rock and roll got big when they were still kids, so they weren't part of the first wave of rock and roll teenagers. They weren't, they weren't part of the first wave of rock and roll teenagers or anything, but they were still there for that. They were still alive for that. They were kids. But I was thinking about their childhoods, and I was, you know, I have pictures of them as kids, and you don't look at pictures of your parents if they were born in the 1940s and be like, oh, yeah, this was dad's skater face. This was dad's skater face. Oh, this is when dad got into rock music. This is when dad got, this. oh, this is when mom, this is mom's Hello Kitty phase. This is when she wore pink all the time. This oh, this is when she oh, this is when mom was a. She kind of went went for this, uh, you know, whatever it is. You know, you just don't see. This is mom's punk phase. You know, you just don't see that stuff if your parents were born in a certain era. And the reality is, it's not just like the the so called repression of the nineteen fifties. It's not just that because there was no real precedent. You know, just a a decade earlier, a generation earlier, kids went to work. They got married and went to work right away. They didn't go to college in most cases. They just went to work. And that having a family and having a job was their identity. And so this in the 1950s, you had, you know, the start of this teenage culture, the idea that teenagers weren't just preparing for adulthood, that they actually had an identity unto themselves. That was pretty new. And so simply being into rock music, being into cars, whatever it was, was a new enough thing that, and and in retrospect, it was relatively conservative. Because, I mean, you look at the first wave of rock and roll, and people have short hair and they wear suits. The musicians are wearing suits and they have short hair. They're relatively conservative, especially by today's standards. And, of course, you have the Beatles, which, you know, was considered long hair. Having a mop top was long hair. Uh, but point being, there just weren't very many options of things to get into. And if you did have a hobby, it was just a hobby. If you were into hunting, you hunted. If you were into cars, you worked on cars and drove cars. But it doesn't seem to have been a heavy-handed identity. It wasn't something that you could just buy the outfit and become. And yeah, there were beat the beat people, whatever you call them. I was going to call them the beat poets, which they included them but the beat generation there was people like that you know and they had a clear style they were greasers but it still it wasn't something that was just a given it wasn't it was if you got into that you were into that it seems like it doesn't seem like something that you just dressed the part of while you were in high school and moved on quickly maybe some people yeah i don't know but there weren't a ton of options, and there was less information, so that limited the amount of options. There were less resources. Even if you had an interest, there were fewer resources to devote 
to that interest. And by resources, I don't, I don't mean like your own money. I just mean you were coming into contact with it less. And looking at pictures of my parents, you know, they didn't go through all these phases. Yeah, you can see where fashion changed. And you can tell by the time they're in high school in the 1960s, fashion is changing a little bit. When I look at pictures of my parents from the early 70s, late 70s, yeah, they're wearing clothes closer to the style of the time. You know, neither of them had become hippies in the late 60s, early 70s. But you can see where their their fashion was informed by the changing times. But you don't look at it and think like, oh, this was when dad went through this phase. Whereas with my generation, you look through someone's childhood photos and you can often clearly see that. Unless they just went, you know, unless they were just an A to B to C type person who just, you know, wore, you know, someone who just played sports and wore polo shirts, you know, or Tommy Hilfiger, unless you just stuck to that, which is an identity unto itself, but unless, unless you just found that and stuck to it, you know, chances are, if you look at childhood photos of someone who's Gen Y, as we used to be called, we used to be called Gen Y before this millennial thing, but if you look at someone who's Gen Y, you'll see, chances are, uh, quite a few different phases they went through, and it's not just fashion, it's also based on their interests. And you can't really separate this identity musical chairs game from music. It seems to be completely informed by music. And I guess that's what's interesting about looking at my parents is when I say there weren't very many resources, there weren't very many options to get into different things, a large part of that was music. You know, if you got into rock and roll, maybe you wore something or you did something to express that but even then it's not like rock and roll was that different from the mainstream until later you know people didn't grow their hair long and start wearing you know leather jackets and all these different outfits until a bit later it seems like uh, so there just there wasn't that much to be except yourself and, of course, you couldn't really rebel in very many different ways, you know, because there was, while I don't like to call the 50s repressive, there was a strict element, you know, to it where it's like you couldn't grow your hair down to your shoulder blades. You couldn't, if you're a man, you couldn't grow your hair down to your shoulder blades. You, know, you couldn't do things like that, but there also wasn't anybody influencing you to do that. Musicians hadn't started doing that, so there wasn't really incentive to do it unless you just wanted to be unique. But uh, this you can't separate any of this from music. And I think when you start to see people take on a very distinct identity is the hippie movement. Yeah, the, the, beat, the beat folks earlier, but that doesn't seem to have taken off nearly to the same degree that the hippie trend did. Where if you look back at pictures of your parents, if they're from my parents' generation, you'll see where that influence crept into the fashion. And no doubt they listened to music uh, that would be called hippie music, that would be called, you know, rock from that era. It would be called hippie rock. <laughs> oh, did you listen to that hippie rock? But you know, you'll see it, and you'll, you can see where that influence crept in. It crept into almost all young people of the time, most young people, many young people. Let's just say mini. And that seems to have been the first time that people adopted a different identity that was in contrast to their previous identity. And then from there, it was just off to the races. There were, 
you know, just music started to change and, you know, you started to see a, a more, a, a wider array of fashion based on what musicians wore. And, and just, there was just a, a proliferation of counterculture, countercultural influence. Sounds really pretentious. A proliferation of counterculture influence filtered throughout the youth in America. But it's true. You see where all that stuff started to fan out. It, the funnel opened up and it went off in all sorts of different directions and started to give people all kinds of different options, different things to get into. And in some cases, it required a little bit of digging. In some cases, it required you to have some kind of entry point. Because there's, there's some things, especially before the internet, that you wouldn't have come into contact with organically. You had to have a friend who got into it, who had an older brother or a cousin, or you yourself just had to be somebody who was digging for jewels. You had to be the kind of person who's digging for jewels. And even then, it was a matter of luck. Even then, you had to luck out. You know, I think about my situation where I had a much older sister who was seven years older, and she went through a phase she was Gen X, but she went through a phase where she got into grunge and then she got into heavy metal and she didn't dig deep. You know, she was into Metallica, Guns N' Roses, you know, some fairly well-known bands and artists, but it still gave me an introduction. You know, she was really into ministry. So I had an idea of what industrial music was. She was a Nine Inch Nails fan, stuff that was popular at the time, but it was still... Certainly nothing that our parents would have ever dreamed of as far as their childhood goes. Like there are photos of my sister with a leather jacket, black lipstick, you know, some sort of interesting black dress that she got in Seattle at a some sort of boutique. You know, she went through a phase and it was relatively short term, but it was important to her at the time to express herself that way. And it was informed largely by the music of the time. And her friends were, you know, the same way. They were a lot of all these dudes that she hung out with who I ended up taking a lot of influence from were basically Heshers. They were into metal. They liked smoking pot. They the types of guys who. You know, one of the guys had the sides of his head shaved and it was like his hair was grown out and slicked back and they were wearing gas station shirts before that really hit full swing with the whole grunge trend, you know, where you, you could go to thrift stores and buy a secondhand gas station shirt. And it was it was a cool statement. It was like, look at me, I'm wearing this, you know, it speaks for itself. It's like, here's something that my peers aren't wearing. It's a way to... to I, you're identifying with something, but there's a sense of irony to it. And that's something you do not see with my parents' generation. And I'm just going to continue to use them as a point of reference because I'm very familiar with what their childhoods were like. I've seen the photos. I've talked to them. And the idea of doing things with a sense of irony, the idea of having an, having an identity that's based at all on a sense of irony I don't even know if they would know what the fuck I'm talking about if I said that. I don't think they would have any idea. If I said to my dad or, you know, my mom when she was alive, I said, it doesn't seem like uh, either of you, you know, it doesn't seem like like people from your age group uh, ever, you didn't have identities based on a sense of irony. 
and just be like, what the, you know, neither of them are abusive people. Neither of them ever hit me in their lives. I feel like they might want to hit me if I had said that. But it's true. I, I don't think that people really integrated this sense of irony into their identity at all. If you were born before a certain time, I think you started to see that with Gen X, you know, thinking about my sister's friends, you know, wearing a gas station shirt with the name Bob stitched into the breast. You would wear that with a sense of irony. Get it? Because I'm not a gas station employee named Bob. It turns out I'm not a gas station employee named Bob. You know, you you would wear that because it's funny. And it's not like you're a clown. And that's why I say a sense of irony, because you're not just wearing it to get an obvious laugh. Like you're not riding a unicycle honking your nose, you know. It's like you're wearing this piece of blue-collar, you know, life. You're wearing this this blue-collar outfit, but you're not. You're not that. And then, of course, by the time I was a teenager, that stuff really started to grow in. That sense of irony really started to grow into the culture. It's like an ingrown toenail. That's how I feel about irony. It's kind of like an ingrown toenail when it infects culture. It's an infected, ingrown toenail. Say that to my parents. Be like, you know, uh, it doesn't seem like you guys really had a sense of irony in your identity growing up. Well, in my opinion, uh, when irony infects the culture, it's like an ingrown toenail getting infected. Um, who is this madman? Who is this madman? I thought you were my son. Um, but, uh, yeah, by the time I was, you know, a teenager, the trucker hat thing got big. I mean, I had some trucker hats when I was probably like 12. I had a trucker hat and it was funny to wear, but it wasn't like, again, it wasn't like something where you expected people to crack up looking at you. If you were wearing a, like I had a trucker hat that said Ryder. It was a, an actual trucker hat. And you would find them at thrift stores. They were a dime a dozen and you would wear that. And there was something kind of cool about them. But it was also, you were wearing it, you know, with some sort of, there was, there was something lighthearted to it. But again, you, it's not like you expected to like walk up to your friends and they start laughing. They roll over laughing because you're wearing a trucker hat. It's it's supposed to be subtly funny, and it's not something that you would typically wear as a twelve year old. I don't even know. I don't even think. I don't even think I can explain it. I don't even think I can explain why that was appealing. I don't think you can really break it down, nor should you. But then that became a thing, and you started to see actual companies, you know, current companies that marketed toward young people making their own trucker hats, which defeated the whole purpose of it. You know, the fact that some sort of fashionable place was making their own brand new trucker hats with their logo on it. It defeated the whole purpose of going to the thrift store and buying a trucker hat for a quarter. But of course, you know, a company is going to want to cash in on something they see happening. And grunge really did a lot to move that along, you know, because, again, my sister and her friends, they were very much of the generation that they were the ideal audience for grunge. And we lived in the Seattle area, so they absorbed a lot of that. And grunge, of course, you know, the people in those bands had a pretty strong sense of irony. I mean, the whole flannel thing kind of started that way. This is a big logging area. So there was a lot of flannel available. And it was associated with a certain type of guy who these sensitive 
musicians were not. They were not that type of guy. So it's kind of funny that they wore flannel, but I don't even know if they thought of it that way. But again, there's just sort of this subtle irony to Gen X, and then by the time I was a teenager, it was not so subtle. You know, but then, then that's that's an identity too, though, where some people will will dress like a clown. Like some people will really look like a clown. And you think about the whole Malgoth phase, which was done without any sense of irony. Now people are doing it with a sense of irony. Adults are fucking doing it with a sense of irony. There's girls in their 20s, even 30s, who didn't go through a Malgoth phase when they were in junior high or high school who are now going through it. Because there's some, you know, again, there's a sense of irony to it. The idea of being into that stuff now. You know, it takes about 20 years for something to kind of become cool again. And I feel like that cycle kind of became blown out. I don't even know if that cycle still happens. The cycle of, you know, it's been 20 years. This retro thing can be cool again. I don't know that that happens. But there is kind of a thing where Instagram girls will be into new metal. And they'll wear you know, Malgoth fashion, but it's been sort of chewed up and recycled and it's almost something else now. But when someone was into that stuff, when someone was a Malgoth in 1999, 2000, there was no sense of irony to it. They were attempting to be unique while still belonging to something. And that's an interesting dynamic. The desire to be unique while also belonging to something else Because that's what you see with people when they get into niche interests, when they get into something that's countercultural, is there's often a desire to be different than their peers, like the people they see at school every day, while belonging to something else that's, at least to them, exclusive in some way. And you see that a lot with underground music, where, you know, the kids who were into you know, punk, hardcore, metal, these sorts of genres, indie rock for that matter. These are the things that were, these were the options that were basically available when I was in school. They were things that you could be into and they would set you apart in some way. And they were a reflection of your interests. But you also had a sense of belonging outside of, you say, your school or even outside of your friend group where like, oh, because I'm into this kind of music and I go to these kinds of shows and I buy these kinds of albums, I belong to this other thing. And for me, you know, I've I've never been comfortable belonging with anything. So for me, I don't even know, you know, it was more just when I went through phases, it was often more just, you know, wanting to look the part of my interests, I suppose, wanting to reflect my interests in some way, wanting to be cool, wanting by my own standard, I guess, and which I often didn't meet. But still, there was a desire to be cool and also to reflect what I was genuinely passionate about at any given time. But with a lot of people, there is this sense of belonging, and it's it's an interesting dynamic to, on one hand, want to be unique and different while also belonging to something. And you can do both of those things at the same time without any cognitive dissonance. You know, it's not like those things cancel each other out, but it's like you're trying to do those in different ways in different parts of your life. And that's interesting to me. All this is interesting to me. It might sound silly to somebody else, but I find this stuff genuinely interesting. It's not covered in most sociology. 
You know, I feel like the problem with a lot of sociological subject matter is it tries to cover the big beats of culture. And I know people have studied subculture, but still, I, I don't really hear it talked about in a raw way. And I genuinely enjoy talking about it that way, and I genuinely enjoy hearing about it that way from friends, from anybody. Uh, so, you know, if, if I want to be really pretentious, be like, this is all very sociolo- sociologically interesting to hear about the way that somebody's mall goth phase was both a desire to be unique while still belonging to something else. Um, but, uh, let's see, I derailed myself. See, this is what happens when you, when that little voice in your head starts going, is it just derails you, it derails you from whatever topic you were on. I don't know, I was talking about Hesher's earlier, and I guess, well, here's what I'll say. With my generation, you know, and maybe Gen X, you know, whenever this kind of, this idea of not having kids, not getting married, whenever that started to pick up steam or lose steam, more likely, I don't think there's very much steam when it comes to deciding not to do the things that are just natural, you know, which is marrying and having a family. And you don't need to get into this idea of like marriage is, marriage isn't natural. You know, not even, I'm not even getting into that. Just the idea of finding a mate and having a family and providing for your family. There's a reason why that used to be what young men and, you know, young women did too. Whether, even if women didn't work, it's like they got involved with some, with, they got involved with something beyond themselves which was starting a family. That was at the core of all this. Men work to provide for their family. And your identity was based around that. Your identity was based around the family that you started, the family you came from with your parents and your siblings, but also the family that you start and the profession you have to provide for that family. And when people used to say, and they still say this, but you know, it used to be a lot more common, which is why it's a cliche now, but when people would say, what do you do? Oh, hi, I'm Rick. What do you do? They're not asking about your hobbies and interests. They're asking about your profession. And yeah, that's kind of BS small talk, and I'm personally not into the idea of wholly identifying with my profession to the point where it's what I would want to introduce myself as. I don't like that idea. But at the same time, it's not total BS. It comes from somewhere. And people's professional identities used to be a much larger part of the community, especially if it was a smaller, tight-knit community, where if you're the undertaker, everybody knows you as the undertaker. And I'm not talking WWF here, although that's true too. I mean, I feel like if your professional identity is a professional wrestler, if your professional identity is being a pro wrestler, you know, the best question you could ever be asked in the entire world is, so what do you do? Be like, I'm a pro wrestler. It'd be a great thing to say. But, but let's say you're the other kind of undertaker. You know, your community knows you that way. And chances are everybody goes to you with their, you know, morbid needs. They're, you know, they have, there's morbid things that we all got to take care of. We got to have people buried. You know, they would go to you and they would know you as the undertaker. If you're the mailman, the community knows you as the mailman, the milkman, the milkman and the mailman. You know, people would know you that way. If you're the gong farmer, 
the guy who shovels the shit in the bottom of a castle. People would know you as, oh, he's the gong farmer. You know, it was tied to who you are, and not in an oppressive way, like not in a way that was trying to snuff out your, you know, your, that just, that real part of you deep down. The artist inside of you. It's not like it was trying to snuff that out. It was just practical. And it was multi-generational. You know, talking about the gong farmer, that wasn't something that you just decided to be. You didn't submit an application to be the guy who shovels the shit out of the bottom of a castle. Your dad was a gong farmer. Your granddaddy was, was a gong farmer. So it's not like this was... Uh, something that you chose to be. And the same was true for all kinds of things. You know, you think about the Robin Hood character, Much the Miller's son. You know, he's, oh, that's the Miller's son. He'll probably become a Miller too. Except he's going through this whole Lost Boys, whatever it's called, not Lost. Is it the Lost Boys? I guess that's that's Peter Pan. Peter Pan, Robin Hood. Who cares? What are they called? Uh, the Merry Men. Lost boys, merry men. What do you, what is this? But you know, the merry it's like, oh, he's 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 going through a phase, going through this merry men of Sherwood Forest phase. But when he grows up, he's gonna become a miller just like his father, much the miller's son. He's not as well known as little John or the sheriff of Notting Nottingham. But there is a character named Much the Miller's Son, and, you know, it's, he's known as the Miller's Son. And chances are, if your father's the Miller, you'll become a Miller, too. There's a reason why people's last names are drawn from this stuff. Miller is a very common last name. And it's because somebody's family was a bunch of Millers. They worked in a mill. They ran a mill. I mean, I knew somebody with the last name Coppersmith. I wonder where that comes from. I wonder where they got that name. It's because you're, it was just who you are, your family. Your professional identity was a large part of your identity. Your family and your identity were basically who you are. And you didn't really stray from that. I mean, people. it's not like people weren't unique in their own ways, but it was still, when it comes to just having hobbies and interests, all these other things weren't at play. The idea of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a metalhead, and I'm, I'm still going to be one when I'm 40. It's not a phase. Oh, yeah, I started wearing uh, jean jackets with patches all over them when I was 13. Now I'm 42, and I'm still doing it. You, know, you, you see that. That's, that's a real thing. People get into something when they're young, and that becomes their thing. And I'm not trashing them for it. I've certainly held on to some things in, in my own way, too. But it's just not something that you were going to see in earlier generations. And the farther back you go, the more true that is. It just wasn't an option. So you start to see these options develop. You start to see this counterculture. You start to see this popular music. And then you start to see not popular music. And how people identify with that. How that speaks to people. And you know that usually goes along with its own fashion, you know, talking about punk, talking about metal, industrial, all kinds of things, being a Malgoth. All of these things are, again, tied to this musical interest. And then now we're at a point where it's like we're not having families. Some people are. 
but we're not going through that route. Because, I mean, in most cases, somebody who had kids, had a wife, had a job, had a career, they weren't really looking for much else. And maybe they were. You know, you have alcoholics, you have people who weren't happy with their situation. Maybe they didn't love their wife. Maybe their wife didn't love them. But still, there were a lot of people who had all of those things, and they had immediate goals. They wanted to take care of their family. If they were a functional person, they wanted to take care of their family. They wanted to go on vacations. They wanted to, you know, maintain their house, buy a new car. And that's boring to a lot of people, of course. You know, those those sorts of classic middle class, classic middle class, middle classic, let's call it that, the middle classic goals. You know, they became boring to people, but there was a time where that was new, and that was something worth focusing on. But you see, with my generation, and I believe it started with Gen X, where there's you know less of a desire to marry, and if you do get married, less of a desire to have children. So you end up being a permanent child because you're continually focused on yourself. Your goals are all inward. Unless you're able to somehow you know help people Unless you just donate all of your time to other people, you know, for the most part, all of your focus is inward and you don't ever really get past that musical chairs. And even if you stick to something, you know, that's just saying like, I like this chair, like someone who got into punk when they were a teenager and never outgrew it. I mean, I respect the commitment, I guess, but there is a part of that that's like, I just like this chair. I'm just showing you how much I like this chair. You know, there is an element of that with it. And there's people who just outgrow everything and they just become really normal too. There's people who went through a bunch of different phases and they just kind of become, they just kind of melt into society. But I feel with my generation, that's become less common where people continually have this need to be something. And as music's gotten easier to create, as the tools to create music, I mean, you can create electronic music, on your phone. You know, everybody's got an acoustic guitar in their closet. You know, there's just so many different ways to express yourself and you have a lot more people wanting to be artists, a lot people a lot more people wanting to a lot <laughs> just many more people identifying with some kind of creative persona. And even if they're not creative, giving that impression in their style and the way they dress and how they come across, if they're not a creative person themselves, they want to be seen as somebody who's interested in creativity. They're somebody who pays attention to whatever's happening in these other worlds of creativity. They're getting new records, they're going to see new bands. They're finding out about old bands that they may have missed. They're getting into new things. They're finding a new identity. They're an adult male who is now going through a neo-folk phase. He heard a neo-folk band he liked. And he liked it enough to be like, I want to hear more. I want to hear more neo-folk. And now I'm going to cut my hair that way. I see how these guys on the album covers have their hair. They all have the, the sides of their head shaved, parted on the side, combed over. They all wear, you know, button-up shirts. They tuck their shirts in and wear belts. They all pose in front of deer antlers and uh, engraved metal moons 
on stands, I don't even know, esoteric objects, miscellaneous esoteric objects. That's the name of my, it's the name of me, it's my name, miscellaneous esoteric object. But, it, you know, you, you see where people continue to jump around these chairs. They, they continue to, to want that. And you even have people now at age 35 who are like, you know, I've decided I'm a Hesher now. I'm a Hesher now. And Heshers are of particular interest to me because we've always known what they are. But I didn't know that word for them until a little bit later. I don't know how long people have been using the term Hesher, but growing up when I was quite a young kid, like as early as first or second grade, I remember knowing that my sister's friends were Heshers. I remember seeing Heshers around, not knowing there was some word for them, but, but it's like you don't need to know the word Hesher to know what a Hesher is. And of course, Beavis and Butthead became a popular show around that time, and I loved that. So that idea of the Hesher... You know, it's all, it's been around for a long time, and you don't need to know what it is to know what it is. But then it, there started to be a thing where some people later on, because the initial Heshers never would have called themselves a name. They never, like, like a Hesher in 1993 never would have been like, well, I, I consider myself a Hesher. Oh, if I had to put myself in one identity category, it'd be Hesher. You know, you would, that's a good a good way of somebody showing they're not a Hesher. Because a true a true Hesher is not self aware. They don't know. <laughs> they don't know what they are. They just are. And that's a funny thing because now, I know people who are in their thirties who have decided to call themselves Heshers, and I'm not even joking. They've just decided now, like in the same way that other guys, and he's decided that he. Black metal was, you know, old hat to him, so now it's time to go through a neo-folk phase. I know people who have decided in their 30s that they're a Hesher now. And they look the part and they act the part, and maybe it's just a way to justify the fact that they're, you know, they're, they're drinking and smoking and whatever else problem isn't under control, so it's just an easy way of being like, well, I'm just a Hesher. But it's just funny to me, the idea of like actually being like, I'm a Hesher. And of course, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but there's something just inherently funny to me about someone who is a full-grown adult and their entire fashion is based around what teenage metalheads were wearing 30 years ago before this person was, you know, maybe this person was a little kid at the, at the most. And they've decided that as a a 40-year-old male, they want to look like what a teenager metalhead looked like in 1986. (laughs) There's just something inherently funny to me about that. Like, I want to look the same way that teenager looked. Um, And I'm going to call myself a Hesher. And there were all kinds of different Heshers, too. There wasn't just a one-size-fits-all... Hesher. I knew some Heshers when I was in junior high. They were my age. There's a group of about four or five of them, and they two of them were named Alex. Like the two main ones were both named Alex, which is funny. And they didn't do any drugs. This I think maybe later they got into you know just soft drugs. But at this time they weren't cool enough 
to be into drugs by the, you know, at age 13 or 14 or however old they were. They weren't cool enough to be into drugs yet, but they had the Hesher thing down. They wore Megadeth shirts, Metallica shirts. They were into Ozzy. Nothing too out of the ordinary when it comes to metal. You know, they weren't into underground metal by that time. They were just into that main stuff, like the main speed metal bands, you know, classic rock for that matter, hard rock. And so they would wear those sorts of shirts, camo pants, and they talked like Beavis and Butthead. And they were Beavis and Butthead fans. So you can see where even then, even by the late 90s, Heshers were becoming self-aware. And self-awareness will destroy a Hesher. When a Hesher becomes self-aware, that is no longer a true Hesher. But these guys, they were still Heshers. They still had it down. Like, they didn't see Beavis and Butthead and think, I want to be that. They saw Beavis and Butthead and were like, oh, I already am that. So, of course, I'm going to like this. You know, they saw Beavis and Butthead and it was like, they, they already identified with Beavis and Butthead. Therefore, they were going to watch it. It wasn't that they watched Beavis and Butthead and then were like, uh, you know, I'm going to start acting like Beavis. I'm going to, hey guys, what if we started acting like Beavis and Butthead? You know, it's not like they got around, they sat around and did that. It was that they already were that. So of course they're going to be into it. Uh, But these kids, I kind of had an adversarial relationship to them. We weren't enemies at all. Like I would talk to them. We always had stuff to talk about. They weren't my friends by any means, not even, not even acquaintances, but we would always talk. But we, there was sort of a, a little bit of a combativeness to it. You know, it was like I was into Danzig and they would give me all this shit about that, which is funny because you think musically and just everything that Danzig is would be exactly what these kids would like. But they had seen the Beavis and Butthead episode where they make fun of the mother video. There's this episode, an old episode of Beavis and Butthead where they make fun of the Danzig mother video. And because of that, a whole generation of kids made fun of Danzig. There's a bunch of people who didn't become Danzig fans because Beavis and Butthead made fun of him so much in this one episode. So these kids, even though they should have been Danzig fans, they used to give me shit for being a Danzig fan, which is funny. But these kids, yeah, we kind of butted heads and they they were definitely their own entity. And we didn't call them Heshers, but they were called the Scrubs. And I didn't come up with the name Scrubs. I didn't come up with that, but somebody did, and it stuck, and everybody at school just knew them as, oh, the Scrubs. Oh, you mean the Scrubs? And it was this gang of kids, you know, and they weren't bad. They didn't get in trouble. You know, they didn't get good grades or anything. They weren't good kids, but it's like they weren't into drugs yet. They didn't get into serious trouble, but they were just kind of these, you know, they didn't take things very seriously. They didn't take life very seriously. But I had art class with a couple of them, and they had their own fake band, of course. You know, maybe one or two of them had a guitar, but they didn't really play music, and they were not a, an actual band. But they had their own fake band that they named Leviathan, and of course, you know, more well-known bands have used that name, but they didn't know, and I don't even know that those bands, I don't know which Leviathans existed in 1998. But these kids had their own fake band called Leviathan. In art class, we had these art folders, basically poster-sized, but they were a folder, and you'd put all your art in it. You'd store your art in it. 
And so each kid had to design their own. And of course, that was an art project where there was we spent a day designing our art folder. And so you had basically a poster-sized sheet of paper, and you could put whatever you wanted on it. You know, your your identity. You know, you're talking about kids identifying with things, you you would put down your interests. Uh, your friend Benny over there, he 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 drew a giant basketball. He put a giant basketball. He put a basketball on his art folder. But the scrubs, the two scrubs who were in this class, they wrote in huge letters, or the one of them did, Leviathan, and then drew some kind of dragon serpent head, a Leviathan head. And this is all very poorly done. And then underneath it wrote Metal Rules All. So it was kind of a fake album cover. It was like as if somebody designed a fake album cover by a band called Leviathan. And it said Leviathan, Dragon Head, Metal Rules All. And speaking of irony, I have to say that this was done without any sense of irony. Saying something like Metal Rules All to these kids was not an ironic statement. Like, that's how they felt. They felt that metal was where it was at. And, you know, I, I understand. But now you couldn't do that. doesn't matter who you are. You could not make an album called Metal Rules All. You could not be a teenager making a fake album cover on your art folder in art class and write Metal Rules All without some sense of irony. These kids did it without any sense of irony. There was no joke. That was simply how they felt. That's what they were into. Metal, Leviathan, Metal Rules All. But we, they sat at a different table than my friends, but, and we would kind of, we would trade quips with them, because those kids love to, those kids love to uh, just jab at you. You know, they, like I said, they would talk to me a lot, and I would talk to them, but they were always throwing jabs at you. Their sense of humor was very much Beavis and Butthead. Oh, you do this? Huh. Did you say cheese? You know, it was like that kind of sense of humor. Like very, very basic puns. Anything that could be obviously, you know, related to like innuendo. Just a lot of it wasn't even, you know, who even knows where it came from. But everybody knows people like this. But their sense of humor was very much that. But one day I decided to draw them. I decided to draw the two scrubs who were in my art class. And I have to say, I nailed it. I I drew a very accurate caricature, I guess you could call it, of each of them. And one of them, I think I even like changed his shirt so it said Bob's Auto Parts, something like that. It's like kind of what my sense of humor would have been like at the time as far as drawing some sort of caricature or parody. And so I drew these two kids... I don't remember if I put their names on it. I don't think I did, but it was obviously them. They were very distinctive looking, and it was obviously them. And so the next period, I had a class with this guy. I think it was the guy who actually came up with the name Scrubs. He was a little bit older than I was, a couple years older, and he was in my math class. And I was like, oh, yeah, I drew the Scrubs. And I showed him, and he was just like, holy shit. He's like, can I borrow this? And I was like, yeah. I mean, I was just happy that somebody liked my drawing so much. And knew who it was. And, you know, I went about my day. It got to be near the end of the day. And I came out of class. And this guy, too, I have to say, this guy, this older guy who borrowed the drawing, the guy who I believe came up with the name Scrubs, he was on the newspaper team. He was in the newspaper class. And so he had gone to his newspaper class with my drawing. And he had access to a photocopier, and he must have made 50 copies of this drawing of the two scrubs. 
And so I get out of class and I'm walking up to the locker bay and I see this kind of excitement, this buzz. And I see this guy handing out copies of my drawing to random kids, people I didn't even know. And everyone was looking at it. Everyone knew who it was. It was like something out of a junior high TV show. It was like something you'd see on the Wonder Years. And my stomach dropped. You know, I wasn't even concerned about these kids' feelings or anything. Like I said, it was an accurate portrayal of them. If it was unflattering, well, I'm sorry. It was accurate. But I just, my stomach dropped because I was just like, oh, no. Everyone is getting a copy of that drawing. The drawing is making its rent. Like, like I just saw this buzz and I see this guy. He has a stack of probably 50 copies on top of the lockers and he's just handing them out to people. Like I said, it's like you couldn't even script that. I mean, you could, but it's like something that would have happened, you know, on a cartoon or a TV show about school. And I just, my stomach dropped because I just figured out I'm going to get in trouble for this somehow. Somehow I'm going to get in trouble for this. And sure enough, the two kids found out about it, the two kids I drew, and they went to the office, and I didn't see this firsthand, but I was told, someone ran up to me, and they were like, Eric, like, those two guys, they went to the principal's secretary and told them about the drawing. I think they may have even had a copy themselves. And I didn't know this even existed, but there was a... Because yearbooks didn't come out until the end of the year, but I, la- I I only know this because of this story. But apparently, in the office, they have their own basically a yearbook early in the year where it has every kid's photo and name, and it's so that you can identify certain kids. And so this lady got this out, and those kids pointed me out. They didn't know my last name, so they were like, "Yeah, this guy Eric, you know, drew a picture of us," and they pointed me out. And I found all this out from somebody who witnessed it. And I went up to the guy who made all the photocopies and I was like, I'm going to get in trouble. You know, they they were in the office ratting me out because, I mean, that's the thing is a Hesher who snitches. You don't think a Hesher's is snitches, but these guys snitched me out. These guys ratted me out. And so I went to the guy who, you know, the, the guy who made the photocopies and I, I told him, I got to do something like I'm going to get in trouble for this. I don't know what kind of trouble I was expecting, but he was like, I'll help you skip class. Cause the way they normally did things where if, if you were in trouble, you would be sitting in class and they would send, they would send the, there was always a kid who worked for the office. Like it was a teacher's assistant or something. And there'd be a kid who works for the office and they would be responsible for going to classes with, with little slips of paper asking for kids to come to the office. And so I was expecting maybe they were going to send somebody to my class with a slip of paper asking me to come to the office. And so this guy, the guy who made the photocopies, he was like, I'll help you skip class. And I never skipped class in junior high. And so we hid behind this building in the back of the school. And we hid there for, as far as I know, you know, an hour, I don't know, however long a class is. And we just sat there talking and I was really nervous. I was really anxious because I expected any minute to get in trouble. But I never did. That was the interesting thing is this thing played out where these kids ratted me out. Those drawings made their rounds that day throughout the locker bay. But they never ended up calling me to the office. And I don't know if it just wasn't serious enough. Like maybe they were going to initially and they just decided, you know, this isn't enough of a big deal. 
And that was also a different time where, you know, you could be mean to other kids. Like, you would get in trouble for fighting. I got suspended for fighting that same year, actually. I got suspended, and it's not like we were slugging each other in the face, but I got in a fight with this kid. He was, like, pulling on my jacket, and I was kicking him in the stomach. He, he like had, he was, like, trying to pull my jacket over my head, and I was, like, in retaliation. I was kicking him in the stomach, and a, a substitute teacher saw... So I got suspended in school. It was an in-school suspension. You basically went to this weird room that you didn't know existed with a bunch of kids that you, if you knew they existed, you would never want to be in a room with them. But uh, anyway, so, you know, but then it was like you would get in a lot of trouble for fighting. There were certain things you would get in trouble for, but just being mean to each other. It was before this anti-bullying stuff. And I think there's something to, kids need to be able to be mean to each other. Kids need to bully each other a little bit. And the thing that gets me about all of this anti-bullying nonsense is how stupid the word bully is. Like, that is such a silly word. Like, I know you buy your dog bully sticks to chew on, and what that is, it's a bull's dick, and it's called a bully stick. And I feel like saying the word bully about kids is just as stupid. And that's not to say there isn't an incredibly cruel and malignant side of bullying that makes kids not want to live or come to school. And yeah, something should probably be done about that. Like if somebody is being so cruel to another kid that it makes that kid not even want to come to school and it affects them even outside of school, yeah, something should be done about that. But the problem with all this anti-bullying stuff, and I feel like this is a water is wet statement, but the problem with all this anti-bullying stuff is it prevents kids from just throwing barbs at each other and just being mean to each other because you need to learn how to do that. You need to learn not just how to do it, but how to take it. You need to be able to draw pictures of people. You need to learn how to parody your peers. And and you need to know what it feels like to see when that parody gets photocopied and to feel your stomach drop when you see tons of kids that have a copy of it now. Like you're living in a movie. You need to go through that. But the problem is just that all of this stuff paints with such a broad brush. And I mean, I understand the idea. Like if there's a kid who's abused at home or has a really shitty home life and then he goes to school and it's shitty there where he's bullied, like that is fucking awful. That is comic. It's almost comical how awful that is. And I know it's real. I know there are kids who don't want to be at home with their awful parents and they go to school and somebody singles them out every day. And that is, that's just, I mean, it's comical just because it's like, it's so sad. It's so sad that it's like, you almost have to just laugh at how horrible that is. Um, it's almost like those videos of somebody releasing a, an animal that's been rehabilitated into the wild. And then it, imme- it immediately gets like picked up by a hawk and you know, carried off to be eaten. It's like, it's in the same way that that's comical, you know, it's almost like that. But uh, I think that's the exception. I don't think things are normally that way. But people have even developed, you know, this is going off on a sort of another tangent, but it's like people have developed this. I don't know. I know people who have decided that their identity as an adult is being a nerd. Because that's another part of all this, the whole, and I don't even feel like that's a thing right now. I don't know if the whole, I think the, you know, that thing like a few years ago where people like, were like, oh, it's cool to be a nerd now. It's cool to be a nerd now. You know, like that whole thing a few years ago. I feel like that kind of died out. 
I don't, I think everybody just became a nerd. And so there's not really any distinction between being a nerd and not being a nerd. But the problem with that whole bully nerd sort of archetypical scenario, archetypal, archetypical, I never know what to say, archipelago. The problem with that whole bully nerd archipelago is that a lot of people weren't bullied. But they know that that is a kind of a stereotypical situation of jocks bullying nerds. And I didn't see a lot of that growing up. Almost all of the so-called bullying meanness that I saw was within a friend group. My friends were mean to me. I was mean to them. And I witnessed it with other friend groups. Friends were mean to friends. And and some mom would be like, well, they're not your real friends. Are your friends called you that? They called you a, you know, they're not your real friends. But they are. Kids are just brutal to each other. And some of those friendships will last. Some of them won't. But, you know, for the most part, kids are just brutal to each other. And that happens especially within friend groups. And that may, you know, may have happened in other places, you know, maybe there are other places, other times in history where the jocks just relentlessly bullied the nerds. I didn't see it. I didn't see it at any of the schools I went to the time when I was growing up. You know, maybe it happened in some places. Maybe it was going on in Texas, in rural Texas. Maybe that's what was going on. I don't know. I can't tell anybody else their life. They're wrong. You're wrong about your life. You're wrong about your life, you know. Uh, Doesn't that just sum up so many people's attitude these days? You're wrong about your life. But I I feel like there's this whole generation that grew up knowing that was the archetype. There are the jocks and they bully the nerds. And there are people who weren't popular and were insecure who grew up and then they identified with something. They identified as an artist or a nerd or something that's, you know, they feel is outside the mainstream or something. And even though they weren't bullied, they identify with a group of people who in theory get bullied. And they've almost convinced themselves that they were bullied. or they, They've convinced themselves that there was some, some sort of adversity in their childhood that wasn't there. And I say this because I've seen it from people I know where people who didn't have it bad have kind of manufactured this adversity. And we see a lot of that manufactured adversity in our culture in general. And I've talked a lot about it, so I don't need to go into it, but it's the sort of American idol intro. He went through all this. He got his finger chopped off and they, and, and, and all of the bullies in school used to call him a f- and uh, now he's here to sing you know it's like that idea but I've seen it with people I know where they've kind of taken on this revisionist history of their own life where they faced this adversity that didn't exist you know they may not have had a you know they may not have been the most popular kid in school but because they weren't the most popular kid in school they've kind of manufactured this persona that that revolves around being like victimized in some way. And of course that's a whole thing, the victim culture, victim identity. It's just been weird to see that. 
you know, because you identify with these archetypes that are associated with being victimized, you've almost convinced yourself that you too are victimized. Meanwhile, I never really witnessed much of that. Like, I never felt bullied. Like, I people were mean to me sometimes. I was mean to people. But I wouldn't say I was bullying anybody, nor would I say they bullied me. I mean, good thing I didn't go to my 10-year high school, uh, whatever it's called, anniversary, 10-year reunion. My 10-year reunion, I, I would have gone and there would have been like five kids who were like, you were such a bully to me. You know, imagine I go and I find out that all those times when I thought I was just trading jabs when I was just throwing barbs at people and they were throwing them back it turns out they thought I was their bully turns out I was everybody's bully (laughs) Um, I just didn't know because you're here because you're here because we were waiting for you to come to the reunion and now we're gonna put your head in the toilet it's the bully everybody it's big, mean Eric, the bully. We're going to stick his head in the toilet. We're going to piss on him. No. No, I don't want to I don't want to keep going with this this story. Um but anyway, just people have kind of started to identify with this victim story that that didn't even play out in their own life. And that's a weird thing to see. I mean, I've known people who talk about growing up as a skateboarder, and they're like, when I was a skateboarder, the jocks and the Nazis used to beat us up every day. And I've heard that story a lot from people who were older than I was, that as skateboarders, they got beaten up. I never saw that kind of thing play out in my age range. Nobody thought anything one way or another about skateboarding. Nobody thought anything one way or another about people who were into weird music you know nobody got singled out for being different nobody got singled out for expressing themselves or being unique like i said it seemed to mostly involve friend groups and that makes sense because it's a familiarity breeds contempt sort of scenario where you know the flaws of the people you know you know how to get under the skin of the people you know so it's natural that those are the people that you would attack the most and again i'm not not to say that it didn't play out in different ways in different places but i do question that whole narrative that's been you know part of our culture for a long time now that a certain type of person always bullies this other type of person and that's just how it is i just do i do question that but yeah i don't know if i had any, anything else to add about the so-called scrubs that i went to school with i did see one of them later it wasn't the one that i drew he wasn't one of the two guys I drew, but because those guys, they all ended up going to like alternative high schools. They all went elsewhere. Like they were at my junior high, but they, they did not go to high school with me. There was an alternative high school where a bunch of those types of kids went. And alternative high schools, that's a, a major Hesher zone, or at least it was. It was like Wiggers and Heshers. Just anyone who was fucked up in some way went to those. And these kids did. And I ran into one of them years later at Guitar Center, of course. I ran into him at Guitar Center, and he just started following me around, talking to me, because I I knew him back in the day, and he recognized me. And we were talking about drugs, because by then we had all experimented with drugs. 
And I, I was asking him because I wanted to know that because it was so amazing that these kids acted like the biggest stoners in the world. But meanwhile, they weren't, you know, when I knew them, they were too young. They just and they weren't cool enough to have access to those kinds of things. But when I met this kid later at Guitar Center, when I just randomly ran into him, his hair was way longer. You know, these guys were committed. Like I ran into a couple of these kids later and they 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 were committed to what they were. But yeah, Guitar Center, I remember talking to him, and I was talking to him about mushrooms, and he was like, I don't like mushrooms. And like his eyes kind of did something weird, and I could tell that he had had a really bad trip, which isn't surprising. Like these kids, I imagine these guys taking psychedelics and having just a nightmare trip, just based on, you know, their their demeanor. It just didn't seem like, a, like something that, <laughs> that would be very good for them. But I was just kind of talking to him about drugs, about I think he had gotten into smoking weed. But it was just perfect that I don't see this kid for years, and then I run into him at Guitar Center of all places. Of course, you'd run into this long-lost Hesher, just kind of aimlessly wandering around Guitar Center. Um, but that was that was the last I heard of these kids. But they were essential losers. You know, I want to go back to that idea, the idea of essential losers. They knew they were losers. They weren't trying to impress anybody. They were just in their zone. And But I would say they were essential. Like, I wouldn't draw a non-essential loser. I wouldn't make a caricature. If I can even make a caricature of you, you're an essential loser, in my opinion. These kids were essential losers. We needed them. They served, They were part of an ecosystem, and it really did feel that way. Like they kind of hung out, hung hung out in their own corner, you know. In art class, they sat at their own table, because like my friends and I were into weird shit. Like we were, you know, you know, we were into different things, but we were we were into our own weird shit. So you'd think that we would have some sort of camaraderie with these kids, but we really didn't. They were in their own zone. They were a part of the ecosystem. They but they were their own part of the ecosystem. And I guess that's all you can really hope for if you have some kind of identity. You know, that you are part of the ecosystem. Because the problem with identity now is that these identities that people have don't seem to be a part of that ecosystem. They're either playing some game of musical chairs where they never grew up. So it's like, today I'm into this, tomorrow I'm into that. Because they didn't get married and have kids, or even if they did, they don't really have a strong sense of identity. And they hate their country. And their job doesn't mean anything to them. So they and they have all these options. Again, it's an option thing where even an adult now has all these different things they can get into. And and as a result, you just have people who are just playing this endless game of musical chairs. But it's this thing where you can eventually dissolve your identity, sure. You can be like, you know what? My identity is not having an identity. But that itself is an identity. It's like the there's the noise group, the New Blockaders, and they had a slogan which was, even anti-art is art, which is why we reject it. And it's the same thing for identity. Even a non-identity is an identity. Therefore, you can reject it, I guess. And, you know, I, I'm definitely guilty of this myself, where it's like when you've played the game of musical chairs and you've jumped around from different identities and interests and this and that... You'll eventually reach a point, hopefully, where you're just like, I don't need any of this. On this endless pursuit of jewels, I found nothing. 
You know, even if I've held on to bits and pieces of these things, even if I still like some of the things that I used to be into, even if there's a part of this identity that I still identify with, you know, there's a part of it, though, where you'll reach a point, you know, there's, there's a large part of you that'll reach a point and you're just like, I don't want anything. I just, I want to dissolve everything. And that's a spiritual process, you know, that often happens at the end of, you know, the dark night of the soul where you kind of realize I'm ready for some, for a rebirth. And it's very easy to get self-superior about that, to be like, ooh, my identity is not having an identity. And that makes my identity better, better than your identity, you musical chairs hopping fool. You know, it's like, it's very easy to kind of become, to get this air of superiority when it comes to that stuff. And think that you, you found the, the most elusive identity of all. It's not like all of these spiritual people throughout hundreds or thousands of years have done the same thing you've done. It's not like people have become monks for thousands of years, which is an identity, of course. It's funny because becoming a monk is this non-identity. You shave your head. You wear the same thing as all the other monks. You eat the same thing every day. You read the scripture. You live a very repetitive life. Meanwhile, it's a pretty heavy-handed identity to become a monk. Everybody knows what a monk is. Everybody knows what a monk looks like. It's a pretty good identity. And some people become monks because it is such a distinct identity. I mean, you look at those guys who were in hardcore bands in New York in the 80s who became Krishnas. They became they became uh, <laughs> uh, Hare Krishnas. And, uh, you know, that was just another identity for them. They had been part of this punk thing, then they were part of this hardcore, straight-edge identity. You know, I don't even know that I'm getting it perfectly because I, I didn't really follow that stuff. But these guys got into all this stuff. They were record collectors. They were this. They were part of these subcultures. And then they were like, you know what? I've had enough of this. I'm going to become a monk or I'm going to devote myself to some sort of spiritual practice, and that's going to become my identity. And so you can see what leads people there. I mean, it's like how uh, Krishna Das was a... He was the original singer of Blue Oyster Cult. I don't think he ever recorded or performed... I don't think he ever recorded with them. But Krishna Das was the original singer of Blue Oyster Cult before he left everything and went to India. And I've wondered how much that impacted him. I've wondered how much rock and roll... And hanging around with guys like Blue Oyster Cult, who I, you know, I've got no beef with, but I wonder how much being a part of that sort of hard rock, heavy metal subculture—I don't, I don't know if they're rock, I guess—but uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how much of being, how much being part of that may have influenced his, his desire to leave everything and reemerge, you know, to go to India and then come back. And I relate to that myself. I mean, I feel like as part of my own spiritual development a large part of it was all of this shit. You know, all of these subcultures, all of these niche interests. You know, I feel like many of these things that I still care about to this day, these things that I've been passionate about, things that I've been involved with on some level, even though I've never felt like these things are the whole of me, I definitely feel that those things were a large part of my push toward whatever it is I am now, whatever it is I'm trying to do, because I know that I haven't escaped identity. I might wear gym shorts every day, but, I, you know, that's an identity. Being normal becomes an identity. It's like Anton LaVey said, there is less room for deviance within deviance than in any other endeavor. 
And that's what you realize when you're into subversive art, when you're into transgressive interests, is that you realize, oh, the next most subversive thing, the next most transgressive thing is to be more normal. And it's not a surprise that we saw that, you know, we've seen a push with people in counterculture becoming traditional, becoming orthodox, becoming Catholic. We've seen a push in that direction in the last five years. And it's not a surprise because they kind of hit the wall. Counterculture hit a wall, especially as leftism, which, you know, controlled counterculture for many years, still does, at least tries to. You know, the, the relationship between leftism and counterculture is sort of this weekend at Bernie's play where it's like they're propping up this body and they're like, look, we're the we're the belief system of counterculture. Meanwhile, counterculture has been long gone, at least in, on the left for a long time. It's totally it's been totally co-opted. When you have corporations pitching the same things, saying the same things that some quote-unquote counterculture movement is also saying, you know, that's a, at best a weekend at Bernie's, you know, some corp- a corpse is on display. I put it that way. A corpse is on display one way or another. Um, but so it's no surprise that, you know, we've seen a push in, the, in counterculture to, you know, more orthodox and conservative ways of self of expressing yourself and you know if those same people if all those people that converted to catholicism in the last five years were were to meet the average catholic in 1950 they would probably get their ass kicked you know what i mean it's not like these people are really that thing or they're not really what they're trying to be and that's sort of the the merry-go-round of identities, there's always some level of imposter syndrome. And if you stick with it long enough, that subsides. Maybe it goes away, but it definitely subsides a little bit. You kind of grow into it. But still, I feel like I've never been able to escape a feeling of imposter syndrome in anything and everything I've ever done. And it's especially true the more you jump around. And it's totally fine and totally cool to jump around. It's totally cool to get into different things and to be a dynamic person with diverse interests, to be constantly evolving. But the real change always happens within. And when I think about the kid I knew growing up who, yesterday he was a skater, the day after, you know, the day after yesterday, <laughs> today. No, yesterday he was, he was a skater, today he's an orthodox raver. Tomorrow, he's into, you know, death metal. The day after that, you know, it's neo-folk. Then, he, then he's into rap. Now he's got a, his rap side is showing. You know, it's... He, he, oh, now he's a wigger. Now he's a wigger. I, knew, I always knew he was headed there. But, you know, it's, it's just that sort of thing. And a kid is going to go through that. Of course, a kid is going to go through phases... And is going to be searching for some sort of superficial identity. And not that it's all superficial, but just they're going to want to look a certain way. They're going to want to reflect their interests in the way they appear. You know, they want to they want to walk around as a billboard for their interests, basically. And that's understandable. But it's like you do reach a point in life where you realize that you're just decorating yourself. 
And the real change does happen within. Not to say that, you know, getting into different things and going through different phases doesn't have its depth, too. Because the interesting thing about going through phases is somebody who, you know, grabs hold of a new identity, they might start looking for a different type of girl. Like, when that guy was a raver, he was probably thinking, like, oh, my dream girl, she wears a baby doll shirt and she's got rainbow hair. And she walks around with a pacifier. And she's got Jinka jeans, just like me. You can't see your feet, looks like she's floating. You know, that guy, he was probably thinking at that time, like, my ideal mate on this earthly plane is a raver, just like me. And we're going to have little raver babies. Those exist somewhere. And then when he got into Neofolk, he's probably thinking, I'd like a, a cool sleek witchy girl who likes mildly controversial esoteric music just like me you know when we get into things it's like it's not totally superficial because it shapes so much of what we're focused on at that time and like even the type of person that you're attracted to you know for me I've always pretty much liked this, I, I like trashy women. I've never dated them. I've never been involved with trashy women. But it's like as far as what I'm attracted to, it's never really changed. <laughs> you know, like I've always just kind of liked trashy women. But, uh, you know, there is a there is a part of you, though, that's like when you're into something else. Like I, like I remember when I was younger, like having like a like a sort of a, a daydream of meeting a girl who was into the things I was into. You want to find, you want to harmonize, you know, you want, you want to, to, you want to find the right union, you know, with a, with a woman. And, you know, of course your interests might be a part of that. I mean, as I got older, it's like the idea of, I'm a, I'm a fan of his and hers, not just for your soap, not just your sink in the master bathroom, but I'm a fan of his and her interests. Personally, I find that that's stronger than having all of the same interests or pretending you do or any of that bullshit. Uh, but when that guy was a raver, I bet he was looking for a raver girl. And then when he was something else, he was looking for another type of girl. I don't know. I never asked. So what kind of girl are you looking for? I never asked. But uh, it is just one of those things where it, it can affect you deeply. And like those phases, parts of those phases might stay with you. You know, parts of them might stay with you and you're on to the next thing, but a a part of it sticks around. It's not like I'm saying all of this is meaningless. And I think you do have to go down certain roads that you're not going to stay on forever in order to become the person that you could or should be. Not that you could or should be anybody. And in my own process of kind of losing some of my identity of dissolving aspects of my identity, which as I said, you know, it's, you'll never actually do that. The second you think that your identity is gone, there's probably some way more annoying, obvious identity that you've adopted and you don't even realize it's there. But in doing that and going through that process and not by choice, but just kind of, I just ended up there where things kind of get, got dissolved and they're not gone forever, but you do realize that certain parts of you come back in full force and you realize that those are just who you are. You know, yeah, it's your material life during this lifetime. 
you know, it might not be what your soul is actually, actually, oh, it turns out my soul just likes a morbid angel. I thought that my identity was gone, but I found out that I, my soul actually is the one who likes morbid angel. It wasn't just a face. It wasn't just a trend I was following when I was into debt metal. Turns out my soul is the one who's a fan. You know, you, but in reality, though, it's like you might find fun things out about yourself when you let go of all your identities or your soul, the thing that you think is your soul identity. When you let go of that stuff, it's almost surprising in some ways to see what comes back to you. Because in letting go, you also let go of whatever it is that could potentially come back. You're not just letting go of what you think is here right now. You're also letting things that will come back naturally, organically come back too. And it can be surprising what those things are. It can be surprising, but it's also life-affirming. Because you realize, oh, that thing was actually important to me. I actually do have a passion for that. I do care about that. Turns out I am a Hesher after all. I've decided that I'm a Hesher at age 40. I'm going through my Hesher phase at age 40. That's kind of how I feel when someone says they smoked weed for the first time at age 40 because it became legal. It's kind of like... That'd be cool, actually. Like somebody discovers heavy metal and weed at age 40, and that's why they become a Hesher. Because the people I know who have decided that they're Heshers now, who are like 35... They've always been into the same stuff. You know, and there's something a little bit insulting about someone who's smart and self-aware trying to act like a Hesher or act like Beavis and Butthead. Because there are people who are naturally that. Those scrubs that I grew up with, that I went to junior high with, they were naturally Beavis and Butthead. And it was like a feedback loop where watching Beavis and Butthead just reinforced the fact that those kids were already like Beavis and Butthead. But I don't, I don't think it's a chicken and the egg. Like, those kids were already that. They were going to be that. But you'll meet people sometimes who kind of... It's like people trying to act dumber than they are. It's like that kind of thing. And there's always something a little annoying about that. Like, come on. Don't pretend you're a Hesher. My Hesher radar is is so sharp. I have the best Hesher radar. It's hard to say. Say Hesher radar five times fast. Hesher radar, Hesher radar, Hesher radar, Hesher radar, Hesher radar. Uh, the Hesher radar. Uh, but, uh, you know, my radar for who's truly a Hesher and who's not, it's probably like what, you know, some people say they have gaydar. Gaydar. Uh, you have gaydar? I have, I have Hesher-dar. Hesher-dar. <laughs> I have Hesher-dar. I also have misanthrope-dar. I can tell you if you're a misanthrope or not, which is an identity, too. A lot of people identify as a misanthrope while secretly craving the approval of and love of their peers. But it's easier just to say, I'm a misanthrope, I just hate people. I'm a misanthrope, I just hate people. Meanwhile, I'm extremely sensitive, and I seek the feedback from, I seek meaningful feedback from my peers, because humans do matter to me. But publicly, I'm a misanthrope. But my misanthrope radar is also really strong, where if you're ever wondering if you're a misanthrope, come talk to me and I'll let you know. If you're ever wondering if you're truly a Hesher or not, come talk to me, I'll let you know. 
But with mis- with misanthropy, it's it's funny because a lot of people who claim to be humanitarians, people who claim to be on the right side of history, working for the greater good, sure don't seem like it. The way they express themselves, the sort of attitudes that are just what's coming out of their pores sure seems like a, a textbook misanthrope to me. So if somebody's ever curious, if somebody's ever wondering, am I a misanthrope? You might be a misanthrope if, that's my Jeff Foxworthy joke, you might be a misanthrope if. But, uh, you know, those are things that I feel pretty strong about. I, I think I have radar for other things as well. But for the sake of this conversation, misanthrope radar and Hesher radar. Misanthrope dar and Hesher dar. Heshdar. Heshdar. Uh, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you if I think you're the real deal or not. Doesn't matter how much weed you smoke. Doesn't matter how much you try to look like a, you know, a speed metal fan circa 1986. I know if you're a real Hesher or not. And in fact, you know, the real Heshers aren't metalheads at all at this point. I don't know if there are real Heshers. I feel like Heshers could only exist during a certain window of time. Like weed had to be illegal. Hard rock and heavy metal had to be popular. A certain kind of hard rock and heavy metal. You couldn't really have phones and computers around all the time. Yeah, I think that that had to exist only during a certain time. I think anything else is role play, anything else is LARPing. And if there's one thing you should not do, it, it, don't LARP as a Hesher. You know, just you know, it's hard. It's hard to avoid LARPing. It's the same reason that I feel imposter syndrome whenever I try to act a certain way or do a certain thing, especially when I was younger. You know, because you know deep down if you're LARPing or not. And we see LARPing now where activists are LARPing, but so are the opposition. We have people who are opposed to activists, but they're LARPing as these traditionalists. Meanwhile, they're not real traditionalists. There's people who are like, I'm an Orthodox Catholic. And meanwhile, it's like, you're really not. I know you're going through the motions of something. These other identities didn't work out, so now this one's available, and it feels different because you hit a wall when it came to counterculture, subculture, niche interests, so now you've taken on the mainstream. In the same way LaVey said, less room for deviance in deviance than any other endeavor. It's like you do hit a wall where if your desire is to keep being weird or, or keep carving out some sort of unique identity for yourself, you will hit a very steep wall within deviance. And it's very easy to respond to that by being like, well, I'm going to go hard in the opposite direction. And I've done that. You know, I've been that. And some of it's naturally who I am. But I, I remember when I was dating this really artistic girl, a bunch of tattoos and dyed hair this years ago. And I was wearing my Seahawks hat and like a, a plaid shirt or something. And we were outside of a bar and I, I said to her, I was like, how does it feel to be that your boyfriend has the same logo on his hat that's on the 
wheel, the extra wheel case on that Jeep over there. The same logo that's on that spare wheel case on the back of that Jeep is the same logo that's on this hat. And it was like, it was my way of being like, never thought you'd be dating a jock, did you? Art, you're an artsy girl, but uh, do you ever think you'd be dating a fucking uh, a boneheaded jock? You know, it was my way of making that kind of joke. And of course she knew, she knows who I am. She knew who I was. So it wasn't like that, but it was just, I mean, it's very easy to sort of embrace normalcy extra hard as sort of a it's easy to make that the counterculture and part of that I think that's just kind of how our culture in general works you know I think that sometimes things veer one way and so you veer the other way and you know as much as I say as much as I make points like that and joke about being oppositionally defiant I really don't seek to just do the opposite of what other people are doing it's not what I try to do, but I'm very aware of when I'm doing it, and I see other people doing it often, and I understand it. I think that's what it comes down to, is just that I understand that impulse. I understand that compulsion that makes you want to veer a certain way. And I mean, there's a reason why, you know, one of the most basic psychological tricks you can play on somebody to the point where it's even like a cartoon parody is when someone's not doing what you want them to do, you're like, go left. And they're like, no, you're like, go left, go no, go left, no. And then you say, go right. And they go, no. And then they go left. I'm trying to think of a better example, but it's like trying to tell a little kid to do something and they're only responding. Whatever you say, they're going to say the opposite. So you reverse it on them. You're like, clean your room, clean your room. And they're like, no, no, no. And then you're like, go to bed. And they're like, or, or I don't even know. I don't know. You know the example I'm making. It's in cartoons. It's something, it's a trick parents play on their kids where you suddenly start saying the opposite of what you were saying a second ago because the kid is just going to do the opposite of what you're saying. Therefore, you trick them into doing what you wanted them to do originally. And the reason why that's kind of a cliche joke there's a reason why cartoons use that. There's a reason why parents will do that to their kids because it actually works on all of us. We can easily be tricked into doing things that way. And that should give you pause. You should think about different situations in life where someone is telling you to do something and you're rebelling against it and you should ask, is the thing they want me to do the thing that they're telling me to do? Or is the, or does the thing that they want me to do, is the thing they want me to do actually opposite of what they're saying and they're just using that trick on me because they know that I'm an oppositionally defiant, stupid rebel? You know, you should ask yourself that sometimes. I think the modern left should ask themselves that, as should the modern right, especially young people. I'd say people who are under the age of 50, but especially under the age of 40, who have dug their heels into these weird bastardized forms of modern leftism and modern conservatism, you know, I would be asking myself stiff questions. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be asking myself stiff questions 
about whether or not someone is actually telling me to do the opposite of what they actually want me to do because they know that my fighting spirit is going to try to rebel in some way. I mean, I know that if I was somebody who was trying to get other people to do something, that's exactly what I would do. I would manipulate people in exactly that way because I know it's effective and I know that it could potentially work on me. And I like to pride myself as a pretty stubborn, independent-minded person. So if I feel like that trick could work on even me, that silly cartoon trick, I feel like it could work on many people. And then you throw identity into it, where you get people to identify a certain way. And they feel that who they truly are depends on maintaining that identity. Well, you can really get people to do a whole lot. Because people get themselves to do a whole lot by simply wanting to have an identity. People trick themselves their entire youth, throughout their teenage years, throughout their college years. Now that we're no longer, you know, going through the motions of, you know, having a professional identity, being a dad, you know, now that we're no longer in that mode and we're still searching for an identity, that seems like something that could be easily manipulated, and it's easily manipulated by us ourselves individually. We manipulate ourselves. We don't even have control over our own minds in many cases, but who's the person controlling our our mind? It's us too. (laughs) You know, that's the funny thing, is it's like mind control. Oh, I'm so worried about mind control. And it's like, you don't even realize that you are controlling your own mind. You don't even realize that you're already the one controlling your own mind. And so you need to learn, (laughs) in order to control your own mind, you have to learn that you are already the one controlling your own mind. So how's that for a, a riddle? How's that for a Zen koan, you know? In order to, in order to control your mind, you have to learn that you're already controlling your mind. But it's the truth. It's almost like this ghostly other version of yourself. Uh, It's kind of like what Napoleon Hill talks about with the other self. He talks about how there's the, the other self that operates more on faith, and that has to overcome the other self that is operating out of fear. And how you'll never lose the other self that is operating out of fear but you have to learn how to let the other self that operates off of faith take the driver's seat. And it will still be familiar, as he says, you know, it will still be familiar with the self that operates from a place of fear, but just you got to let the one work its magic. You got to orient yourself toward that. And he talks about the dark night of the soul himself. You know, he talks about the other self of faith coming to you And it's already there, of course, but I mean, you becoming aware of it after a process like the dark night of the soul. So all this stuff, you know, people have been dealing with this stuff a long time. Even self-help gurus like Napoleon Hill, he understood this readily, maybe better than most. And if you recognize that you have those components, you know, if you recognize that you have those spirits essentially inside of you, Those are good identities that you don't need to escape from. 
You know, even recognizing that that other self that operates from a place of fear, which is the same part of you that is adopting all of these other identities. Because your desire to adopt a new identity and rebrand yourself and get a makeover, that's all pretty fearful. <laughs> you know, like you do that because you're scared. You're scared of not being cool. You're scared of not being, you know, you're scared of not having your own shape in this world. You're both scared of not standing out, but also you're scared of not fitting in. It's like the desire to both be unique and to belong. That all comes from a place of fear, in my opinion, where you're scared of some undesirable outcome that comes from not having some sort of cool identity or cool set of interests. So it leads you on this journey where you're looking for jewels. And each one of those jewels, each one of those identities that you find, you decorate yourself with these jewels. Each one of those comes with a set of sub-jewels. Like you get into this identity and now you have these kinds of outfits you can wear and you can collect these kinds of records and go to these kinds of shows and read these kinds of books and have these kinds of friends. And so you have a bunch of sub-jewels. The larger jewel that is this new identity also has its own sub-jewels. It's a giant ruby covered in smaller rubies. But your parents probably didn't go through it to the extent that you did. <laughs> if you're my age, your parents probably didn't go through it the same way you did. They probably didn't go through a phase where their fashion involved having a sense of irony. You know, in that way, I don't think their uh, childhood was nearly as repressed as we tend to think of 1950s childhoods. They just didn't have as many options to humiliate themselves with. Because that's what I see when I look back at pictures of myself and I remember going through certain phases. It's not like I'm horrified by it. I laugh at it. It's fun. There's a lot of fun to it. But I still look back at it and I'm humiliated. And I see what other people went through and, you know, I know they feel the same way. Even if you've accepted it, even if you're comfortable with who you are, you see these phases and there is something disgusting. There is something embarrassing. There is something humiliating about it. And a lot of that comes from having all of these options. And I don't know that young people will continue to go through that. I don't know that young people have those options because they have so many. I think things reached a point with the Internet where... Identity just got blown to bits where there are all these even tinier jewels. It's like a jewel shattered. And to try to collect any single one of those is impossible. And people became exposed to so much. It's like if I felt like I had a lot of options with record stores, MTV, and the early, early internet, which basically just gave you a bunch of lists like you could not listen to music, you know, you could you, you couldn't listen to music really. Maybe you could download some stuff. But when I think about when I first got the internet, it wasn't like there was really any paint by numbers way to learn about things. You kind of had to know about it already to even know where to look. And and even then it wasn't like you could really do a whole lot with that. You could basically just get more information, which is a lot. That's getting a lot. You know, that's that's a, a resource that other people wouldn't have had. But I think about that where it was like, you know, those were my resources up to a certain point. And 
Kids who have grown up later have everything. They can learn about everything. They can order everything. Every, there's boutique online stores where you can order any kind of clothing. People make custom clothing. You can be anything you want. You can hybridize. And I think that's kind of what happened. You know, I talk about the nostalgia industry and the way that the internet kind of, the, the way that the internet kind of slowed the wheel where I don't feel like new ideas have come about, at least not in the same way that they did when, say, Gen Xers and millennials, Gen Ys, Gen Ys, like me, grew up, where there were distinct things that came, you know, and yeah, you could get into something that had happened a couple decades earlier. Like when I, you know, when I was in junior high, it's like you could decide that you're into punk now and you could wear punk T-shirts. You could get into older heavy metal. You could get into that kind of stuff. But still, there was this kind of wheel that was turning, and there were new things that you were introduced to and new phases to go through. But I do feel with young people today that that kind of slowed down, and people were exposed to so much that LARPing and recreating and hybridizing older ideas became more the norm. While that's always happened, I feel that the Internet made that just the new process where people are no longer really there's you know there's no longer these organic trends that come and go it's more just kind of like trying to build a jewel out of these fragments of a million shattered jewels and one of the things people do with that is they kind of they create hybrids of things they kind of hybridize things together with the idea that that's somehow fresh or new. I mean, you can see that with music in particular, where they reached a point where you didn't really have these movements in music, like in the same way that rock and roll emerged, heavy metal, then these subgenres, death metal, speed metal, black metal, and then, you know, of course, a million other subgenres of different main genres and this and that. Um, but, you know, in the same way that all of those like came to be and they were new, People hadn't done those before. They were wholly new. You know, it seems like new things didn't start to happen, at least not in the same way. And I'm not one of these, I'm not going to be some old man here and say nothing new has happened in the last 15 years. But it does seem that those sorts of movements stopped happening organically. And what you end up with, like when you run out of like new musical genres to be a part of, when there's, when there's nobody who's treading on new ground you end up with like an increased tendency to hybridize. And you end up with somebody who's like, e, you know, what, what we're going to do uh, is we're going to have a free jazz death metal band. We're going to be part free jazz, part death metal. We're going to have a saxophone player. A saxophone player, you know, you're going to end up with that. And it's generally not good. It's generally pure novelty. So you end up with an increased focus on novelty because that is most of what you can expect to get from hybrids. And that goes for all kinds of hybrids. Every kind of hybrid under the sun. It's like when they breed a tiger and a lion or whatever the joke is, you know. It's like when you breed a, a horse and a donkey and you get a mule. It's a novelty. But nothing can come from that. 
It can't breed on its own. At least that's what I thought. I'm not sure if that's true. I want to say when you crossbreed different species and you create one of those hybrid species, they often can't have their own offspring. And it's amazing how that also plays out creatively, where when something is this novelty based on combining two things that are different, it often ends up being just some sort of lame novelty that can't really create anything else on its own. And nothing can really use that as a jumping off point to create something else. It's just, it seems like that's a a wall. That seems like, and that's what I'm talking about when I say that we hit some sort of wall where even subculture, even counterculture hit this steep wall and became normalized and became co-opted. And I'm not even talking about stupid stuff like, stupid phrases like selling out or whatever that means to people. I'm just talking about running out of juice. I'm just talking about running out of juice. I don't know nothing about selling out. I'm talking about when you run out of juice. Because that's what it is. I see. I, I, and I, it's, it's palpable. If I'm using that right. Pulp. It's pulp. It's all, it's, they're running out of juice. There's just a bunch of pulp left over. There's just a bunch of... There's, it, it's the bottom of the glass. There's no more juice in the glass. And there's just a bunch of pulp in it. You can't you can't do anything with this pulp. But uh you know it it is it's uh it's what happens. It's what happens. But I do look at well this is going to be a 2-hour episode. I'm proud. I'm proud of myself. 2 hour, a 2 hour night school. This is new. This is a a feat. Who knew? A 2 hour night school. Anyway, Uh, But, uh, you know, I do wonder about what's going on in the world right now and people feeling this just immense tension and anxiety, people feeling like it's the end of the world. 2020 end of the world. Is it it 2020 end of the world? (laughs) You know, it's like people are talking are talking like that. And it's, you know, there's something to that. Well, I don't see things that way myself. I'm not going to call this the apocalypse. I'm not going to call this the end of the world. I just don't see things that way. There's a reason why people are saying that. And this might be a period that leads to rebirth. This might be the flower sticking out of the blackened soil after Ragnarok. Not this right now, but what comes after this might be how new things grow again. Because it sure seemed like we hit a wall in just about every possible way. It sure seemed like we were and are stagnating. And I don't feel that that like that's it for America. You know, I don't think it's a symptom of America alone. I think it's a global stagnation. I think we hit some sort of global stagnation. We hit some sort of very steep, very tall wall. Very tall wall. And uh, what do you do in response to that? A lot of people veered in the opposite direction. They were like, well, I hit this wall here. I'm going in the opposite direction. Meanwhile, a bunch of other people are like, I'm staying by this wall because this wall's right. I know I'm not going anywhere, but uh, I just want to touch this wall for the rest of my life. You know, there's some people that's their response to hitting a wall. For some people, hitting that wall is like, this was the destination I was looking for. Other people are like, ooh, I didn't think this was going to end. I'm, I'm doing a wheelie. I'm doing a, I'm doing a 180 and I'm going in the other direction. 
I'm burning rubber going the other way. But I do wonder if what's going on now between the Coroni Violand, the Coroni Vi, between that, between the cultural upheaval, which seems to be, you know, this real mix up of uh, different things. You know, my friend Miles always jokes about how some of these Antifa types, because like, when I got introduced to that whole idea of Antifa, it was years ago. It was in the probably early to mid 2000s. And I knew of it because it was associated with punk. And it, it typically it was people who were kind of into the punk scene, the anarcho punk sort of vibe. Um, but Miles was joking how now, you know, and not even joking, he was just pointing out that now it's like, if you look at this footage of Antifa, it's like, they're wearing like nine inch nails patches. You know, it's like, these aren't people who are deep into subculture. They're just kind of like, they just kind of drifted in from somewhere. They're people who didn't know what identity to take on next. And so they just kind of drifted in and these movements capitalize on that. You know, a loss of identity or confusion over your identity, as I was saying a little bit ago, it's, it's so easily manipulated. And you can be easily manipulated without even realizing it if you're feeling confused, if you're feeling lost, if you're feeling like those previous identities, like you've been playing musical chairs for a long time and you've been looking for the right seat and somebody's like, well, here's a throne. Oh, you, you've been playing musical chairs all this time and... Uh, well, here's a throne. As a reward for playing musical chairs for the past 30 years, we've presented you with a throne. And you're like, oh, no, this is what I'm, oh, I was meant to be a, a ruler. I was meant to be, a, oh, this is, this is what I was looking for. I was jumping around all these different seats. And I, this whole time I was hoping somebody would present me with a throne to sit on. And you don't even know what that thing's made of. You don't even know where it came from. You don't even know you don't even know what that means to sit on that throne. Or why would somebody give that to you? Why would somebody carve out a niche just for you and say you fit in right here. You fit in right here. So always be careful of that. You know, you should always have a sense of imposter syndrome. Cuz what that is, I'll close out on this thought cuz I do need to go to bed. What imposter syndrome isn't some, you know, what imposter syndrome is, it's not some horrible cognitive dissonance that's trying to make you feel like a robot your entire life. It's not there to make you feel like shit. Cogn uh, imposter syndrome is there as a reminder that this is all temporary and none of it is truly real. You know, it's a reminder that these are just things you can do. And you're never completely that thing. Because you're both less than that and more than that. Your beginning and your end has nothing to do with these trends and these options and this fashion and this interest and this music and what your friends are doing and what your friends aren't doing. You know, none of these things involve that or, you know, the, the, the thing that you actually are underneath it all is actually eternal. And it's telling you, yeah, you're an imposter when you do this. That thing inside of you that is eternal and knows so much more beyond your comprehension, it's telling you this. Yeah, this isn't completely you.
The real you isn't necessarily this thing that you think you are right now. And that's why I'm telling you right now that you're an imposter, that you're fake, that you're a poser. And there's nothing wrong with that because that's the other side to it. Just because you are an imposter at the end of the day doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it because it's the best you're going to get. And if that's the best you're going to get, that's liberating. That's freedom. That means you can do and be anything. And you don't have to stick to one thing. And you can dissolve it all at a, on a moment's notice. You can just decide that it's not what you want. And you can just let go of it right now. And you can let some of those things creep back to you. Because I do feel that some of these things are meant to be in your life. And I think most people are meant to have children. A lot of people are. Most people are meant to have a profession that they can identify with and mean something to them. Which is why people feel so comfortable when they have those things. And even people who never thought they would want children suddenly feel at home when they do. You know, I think some of those things are, are those feelings that you get when you feel totally at home with something. And I'm not a father. I don't know what that's like. God forbid I have kids because, you know, I'll, I'll be one of those annoying people with a podcast who has a kid and just talks about how it changes your life. It'll, it'll change your life forever. And I'll become one of those people. And you can imagine how bad that would be based on the things I already say. But, uh, you know, this, uh, you'll, you'll notice that if, when you let go of things, certain things come back to you. But that feeling of imposter syndrome probably will too. I don't think that's something you're going to escape. No matter how secure you are, I think deep down that eternal part of you knows that all of this is circumstantial, temporary, you know, it, it's based on the time in which you lived, what you came into contact with. And the fact that we're all so oversaturated with everything now, the information has proliferated to the point where all of these things that we thought mattered, interests, identity, the fact that they matter much less now because we have access to so many more of them, that should tell you too that none of this is really the thing that you are. And a lot of people know this intuitively. A lot of people just grow up and figure it out. But I find it interesting to talk about. You know, I find this whole topic very interesting, uh, hence doing a two-hour and five-minute episode. But just remember that when you feel that feeling of imposter syndrome, you don't have to fake it till you make it. You can just fake it forever. But you know you're faking it, and that faking it isn't dishonest it's just that this whole thing is some level of illusion. And that doesn't mean you don't experience it. It doesn't mean you don't live it. But it's not the whole of what you are, because the whole of what you are predates this life, and it will continue on after this life, one way or another. Regardless of your spiritual outlook, regardless of your belief system, something predates this, something goes beyond this. And I consider that a healthy way to think about your true identity, whatever that is. This land is mine. God gave this
this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children Take 